Father God, we pray this morning that as we read these words of Jesus that seem very challenging to us, that you would help us to see what you're calling us to, and you'd help us to respond to it as we ought to. So please speak to us as we attend to your word. Amen. This term, we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, as we already noted, and hmm. Sorry. Okay. Uh, It's one of the most famous portions of Jesus' teaching in the the whole of Scripture. In Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus sits down on a mountain surrounded by followers, and he begins to set out the agenda for his kingdom that he's bringing in. As we said last week, it's a kind of revolutionary manifesto, actually, saying, This is what my kingdom is like. This is what subjects in my kingdom should live like in comparison to the world. And last week we looked at the Beatitudes together. We, we saw Jesus saying those, those famous blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and so forth. And we, we came to see that Jesus is describing there the normal Christian life, saying that the normal Christian life is one of blessing as you recognize your impoverished spirit, as you mourn over your sin. And we heard Jesus telling his followers, be what you are. You are the salt of the world, so go out and preserve this world from decay. You are the light of the world, so live lives that shine God's grace, God's truth into the world. And this week we come to the main topic of Jesus' teaching, Uh, That is righteousness. In chapter uh, 5 through 7, Jesus attends to righteousness. But before we dive into this morning's passage together, I I just want to make one thing perfectly clear for us. Jesus is speaking primarily to those who have already decided to follow him. Okay, so he's primarily speaking to Christians, as it were, rather than to the population at large. He is, in effect, uh, addressing Christians. So if we, if we understand Jesus to be saying, these are the ways you need to live in order to be a Christian, we have misunderstood Jesus. These aren't the ways that we live in order to be a Christian. We're saved uh, from eternal death in hell by grace through faith. That's what brings us from death to life. Only by God's grace received by faith. We're brought into the kingdom by faith. Don't be in doubt of that. But this is how we're meant to live in the kingdom once we're in it. Okay, is that clear? This is how it is to be a subject of the king rather than to come into the kingdom. So if you are here and you don't yet think of yourself as a Christian, let me just say you're very, very welcome here. We're so glad to have you here. We want you to come back. We hope you feel very much at home. But as you hear this sermon, just know that you will not be able to grow as a disciple of Christ until you become a disciple of Christ. And that comes through faith, by grace, not by the way you live. So as you, as you listen, if, if you're a non-Christian this morning, I hope that you'll see how deeply attractive it is uh, to be a member of this kingdom how deeply attractive the king is, and that you'll want to live for him. 
but back to the topic at hand, righteousness. After telling his followers they are blessed members of his kingdom, they are salt and light in the world, the natural next question then is, well, how do we live then? We're meant to go into the world and be salt and be light. How do we live? What does it look like practically to be redeemed? And Jesus' answer is that we're to be righteous. In other words, we're to live lives that are pure and blameless and innocent. The problem in Jesus' day, as in our day, I think, is that there are many people peddling a kind of counterfeit righteousness. Uh, that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in the New Testament. You see, they read the Old Testament. They were very familiar with the scriptures. They paid close attention, and they reckoned that there were about 248 commandments that you needed to, to do, and about 365 commandments that you needed to refrain from doing. And if you could do those 248 plus 365 things, then you were righteous. They, they interpreted the law so that they could just about keep it. They interpreted its regulations and its uh, permissions, making them just wide enough that they could basically keep these laws. And they, they would put hedges around, their, uh, around the laws, meaning, well, if we're not supposed to work, then we probably shouldn't pick things up either. And if we can't pick things up, then we probably shouldn't turn anything on or light any fires either. And they put hedges around hedges around hedges so that they could keep the law. And they thought, that makes us righteous. If anyone in Israel was righteous, it was a Pharisee. But Jesus says their righteousness was counterfeit. Verse 20, he says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Despite their close attention to God's law, no one paid a closer attention. Despite their zeal for obedience that would put most of us to shame, according to Jesus, they'd exchanged real righteousness for counterfeit righteousness. And I want you to think, think about this. Don't we often do the same? Don't people around us often do the same? You want to see the evidence, just think of your social media feed, if you're on it still, if you haven't given it up. Surely you'll see different people putting across different ideas of what the righteous life is. You see, there are people implying or perhaps outright saying that if you observe a certain diet, if you uh, raise your children in certain ways and not other ways, if you reduce your carbon footprint or whatever the, the case is, then you're righteous then you're, you're living up to the standard. And if you don't live the way they say is righteous, if you don't act in that way, well, they tut under their breath. They take note of your transgression. They don't invite you to the dinner party or whatever the case might be. That's a kind of righteousness. Or maybe you might think of the, the politically minded man who, who is forever unmasking and exposing the wretched misdeeds of that other party. 
and if you're righteous too, surely you will share the most cutting opinion pieces on your Facebook page or your Twitter feed. Surely you will belittle the unenlightened rubes that make up the other half of the country where you're from. And certainly you'll vote correctly in the next election. And then there's the couple who, they've just posted photos from the marathon that they recently completed for charity. You know, they, they just so happen to beat their personal record times as well. You know, so, hashtag clean eating, hashtag so blessed, right? This is what virtue looks like. And maybe you couldn't run the marathon with them, but you can donate to them to show you're on the side of the angels. That's a kind of righteousness. And we could think of many others who peddle a counterfeit righteousness. And if we were honest, we sometimes do the same ourselves. We so easily start to believe our own attitudes, our own opinions, our own behaviors are what make us righteous. And those who agree with us, well, they're righteous too. And those who don't, well, no more needs to be said. And as soon as we start thinking that way, we start looking down at other people. We start thinking of them as stupid or as reckless or as simply morally repugnant. How could they? And very quickly, oh, so easily, we mistake and replace the genuine article of righteousness for a counterfeit picture. How can we escape the self-righteous trap? Well, as with any counterfeit, the best way to reveal a false righteousness is to hold it up next to the genuine article. And that's what I've been told about bank tellers. The best way for them to be able to tell when counterfeit money comes across is just to handle the real stuff every day, to feel how it feels, to fold how it folds, to observe, and then when the fake one comes across, they can tell. And, and the same is true with righteousness. And when you hold it up to the, the false pictures, you see that um, there are flaws, there are inconsistencies in the counterfeit. And according to Jesus, the only place to find the, the genuine article of righteousness is the Old Testament law. Did you catch that? Verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to see what the gold standard of righteousness is, says Jesus, don't look inside yourself. Uh, don't read opinion pieces. Don't look at what our culture says. Read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. It, it is there that we find the eternally enduring standard of righteousness to which all human conduct is held to account. I wonder if that's how you think of the Old Testament. 
That's how Jesus saw it. I'm afraid we, we easily imagine the Old Testament to be a kind of bad first draft for the New Testament, right? They got a few things wrong, so there was a bit of revision, and now we have Jesus and, and the New Testament, and so we can leave that old bad first draft behind. But Jesus says not even the smallest letter, not even the, the smallest accent on the smallest letter will be set aside. He fully endorses what the Old Testament teaches. And he doesn't simply endorse it, he says he came to fulfill it. Now what does he mean? Well, I think at least two things. First, Jesus fulfills the law by being the one toward whom the whole Old Testament is pointing. The law and the prophets, they were never meant to be an end to themselves. Uh, they were meant to direct people to God as people observed them. The law had many different aspects. There was moral law, there was civil law, there were ceremonial laws. But all of them were meant to teach people about sin and salvation. Justice and mercy about God himself, in other words. And Jesus says everything the law taught finds its fulfillment in him. It's, it's easier to understand that for some laws rather than others, but if all the law and the prophets are about Jesus, as Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, at the end, or as the end of Luke's Gospel says, then it, it must be true that even in the strangest, most incomprehensible law to us, it's somehow pointing to Christ. Now think, for instance, of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Uh, the law gave very specific commands about what kinds of animals were to be offered and how they were to be offered. For instance, a spotless lamb, one that um, had no blemishes on it, was meant to be given as the appropriate atonement for sin. The fact that blood could atone for sin was taught repeatedly in the law. And so when Jesus comes along, who is himself sinless, who is himself righteous and without blemish or spot, sheds his blood on the cross as the ultimate atonement for sin, he's fulfilling the law. You see, the law pointed towards it, but it didn't accomplish it. Jesus accomplishes it. So the law still applies. It hasn't been abolished. We must still have a blood sacrifice to atone for sin. Have you ever thought about that? You still need blood to atone for your sin, and I do too. It's just that Jesus is the one who has shed his blood to atone for our sin. Things haven't changed, but we have the fulfillment. Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial law. His blood was the, as we'll say later on in the service, the full perfect, sufficient sacrifice, satisfaction, and oblation for the sins of the whole world. And anyone who trusts in that sacrifice is made clean. So Jesus fulfills the law by being the one towards which it all points. But Jesus also fulfills the law by providing the authoritative interpretation of it. And that's the sense that we see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, really, and certainly in this section that we're reading. The Pharisees thought that when Jesus rejected their interpretation, he's rejecting the law. They said, he's a lawbreaker. His disciples, they don't observe the law. But Jesus says, no, you've just misinterpreted the law. 
let me show you what the law is really about. They had tamed it and interpreted it in convenient ways. And Jesus says, no, this is the truth of the law. And shows what it's really teaching, how to really obey it. And as we look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see him fulfill the law in exactly that way. So verses 21 to 48 of our reading this morning, they give us six case studies. Six case studies in the law to help us understand how we're meant to interpret it, how we're meant to see it, to show us the difference between real righteousness and the self-righteous counterfeit. This morning we're going to look at the first two case studies in depth, and the last four we'll move through much more quickly. Jesus, in the first case study on murder, he begins by taking what is commonly understood about the law um, in that culture. He says, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And so the common understanding was that if you refrain from the physical act of murder, you are keeping the law. I suppose we agree that's a, that's a jolly good law, isn't it? We don't want to see people be murdered. So that's right, that a murderer should face judgment. But Jesus shows them that what the law was actually meant to teach and, and to reach was much deeper than that. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus says, the commandment, do not murder, was always about more than simply refraining from killing somebody, ending a life. It, it was also about the attitude that leads to murder. It's about the kind of feeling that, that leads me and leads you sometimes, perhaps if you're as ungodly as me, to curse under your breath as you think about the person who has wronged you. Maybe it's years in the past, but it still happens. It's the attitude that leads us to celebrate when something bad happens to somebody that we don't particularly like. It's the seething rage that bubbles up to the surface as we respond again to our wife, or, or to our children, or, or to the person that we're supposed to love with anger. And Jesus says that kind of anger leads to the same judgment as murder, the fires of hell. You know, I, I think suddenly, very quickly, those of us who are very happy to see murderers face judgment... I realize we are under the same judgment ourselves. And by that standard of righteousness, every one of us is guilty. And the genuine righteousness that Jesus tells us of, shows us, has that effect. It always has that effect. It deflates our counterfeit self-righteousness. It allowed us to say, well, you know, at least I'm better than you. At least I'm better than you. At least, I, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And it makes us say, I too stand condemned by God's law. And it forces us, therefore, to flee to him for mercy. 
Do you see? The, the law, as fulfilled by Jesus, points us back to God's grace, makes us flee to him for mercy, because we know that we stand under judgment. So what does it look like to be righteous in the area of, uh, of, of anger and of dispute? Well, Jesus shows us in verses 23 to 26 to show that real righteousness looks like the opposite of derisive anger. It means settling disputes quickly. Even when we're not, uh, even when it's not my fault per se. If somebody has something against you as you're offering something at the, the temple, you go and make up with them quickly. I am to go and to make peace with those who have something against me. And that's what real righteousness looks like. And then the second case study, adultery. Again, Jesus says, the common understanding of one of the Ten Commandments is this. You have heard that it was said, verse 27, do not commit adultery. And the Pharisees taught and people thought that as long as you didn't have sex with somebody who was not married to you, you were keeping the law. And so they flirted with sin. But again, Jesus shows that the law is interested in more than just that, that final act. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we see at the root of the issue here. Uh, make no mistake, it isn't wrong for us to feel a, a natural sexual attraction to uh, persons of the opposite sex. But Jesus says, when we begin to look lustfully, when we begin to allow our eyes to dwell and our thoughts to linger over someone who we're not married to, that is the root of adultery. And we know that, don't we? We know that. We know that cheating never starts, or, or, or it never just so happens that a person finds themselves in bed with somebody who's not their wife, does it? It begins with the quick looks. It continues with the, the lingering thoughts. And then the small transgressions. And finally, to the adultery itself. So we, we tut at the latest politician who is exposed in scandal on the front page of the newspaper, and then we, we turn the newspaper to the celebrity section, and we, we devour the celebrities in their bikinis. Or at night we, we click those links, and we know what we'll see, but we click them anyway, and we say to ourselves, it's not really so bad. But the righteous standard of the law condemns us. It, it forces us to throw ourselves at the feet of the Lord Jesus and ask for mercy. The fulfillment of the law leads to a realization that we are guilty, but God is good. He will restore and forgive murderers and adulterers like us. He alone gives us the righteousness that surpasses that of Pharisees. A genuine righteousness that has nothing to do with our worthiness, but has everything to do with His grace, our dependence on Him to fulfill the law. As we look to Him, we find the strength we need to, to cut off those things that lead us into sin. 
Jesus uses this hyperbole to, to capture our attention in verses 29 and 30. It is certainly against God's law to harm yourself. So Jesus is not saying to actually pluck out the eye, cut off the arm, but he's saying, his point is clear, sin is that serious that we should withhold nothing in order to run away from sin, to resist it. So some have cut off their internet access. Some have found strength to have a long overdue conversation with their spouse. Some have found strength to change their workplace, to get away from that person who might be a temptation. You know, extreme actions are in order, says Jesus, to flee from temptation. And just like plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand will not prevent us from sinning with the other hand. If I, I chop off my right hand, I'll sin with my left. I pluck out my right eye, I'll sin with my left. It will not prevent you from sinning to do those extreme actions. If you're insistent on sinning, but if you really want to live righteously, if you really want to glorify God with your life, there is no action too extreme to run away from temptation and sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Nothing should we fear giving up in order to, uh, to flee from sin and the fires of hell. We should fear the fires of hell far more than we fear losing whatever it is we fear losing. Uh, those are the, the first two case studies. Uh, and Jesus then goes through four more. Divorce, oaths, justice, and love. He's established his pattern. He first states what the people had received as a common understanding of the law. Then he authoritatively interprets the law. And he goes on to show what true righteousness looks like in that area. And for the sake of time, we're not going to go into all four of those. But uh, allow me to make comments on all of them in passing. First, divorce. In Jesus' time, as in our time, divorce was seen as a normal occurrence. Uh, there were two main interpretations of the law. One said, you can divorce for any reason, as long as you follow appropriate legal procedures, give a certificate of divorce. Another said, you can only divorce uh, for a, a limited number of reasons under God's law, one of which was adultery, uh, another of abandonment, etc. But they were both agreed, it's really just a matter of following the legal procedure appropriately. But Jesus says, Divorce is not a trivial matter. It's not just a legal uh, procedure. Jesus says, God's law permits divorce in cases of sexual immorality due to the hardness of human hearts, our inability uh, to forgive or our, uh, uh, our willingness to, to hurt our partner in that way. But it is never a matter of trivial legal procedure to divorce. Other parts of scripture tell us God hates divorce. Uh, true righteousness means honoring our marriage vows, therefore. Members of Christ's kingdom are called to be utterly committed. Secondly, oaths. I, I've been learning in Hong Kong, it, it's a place where flakiness is kind of accepted. Have you found that? Is that just me? Where people are, are willing to, to cancel and to opt out at the last moment, even if you've made plans for a long time in advance. Right? That's common practice. 
one doesn't necessarily expect you to do what you've agreed to do. But Jesus says, it should not be so in my kingdom. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. So Christians, they don't save face with lies. They don't make themselves more believable by swearing oaths. I swear on my mother's grave, I'll be there. We don't do those sorts of things as Christians. We let our yes be yes, our no be no, because members of Christ's kingdom are called to be utterly truthful. Third, retribution. In our personal relationships, far from seeking to exact justice from those who have wronged us, Jesus calls us to respond to mistreatment with grace. You know, the, the standard just keeps getting ratcheted up and up and up. Not that we should allow ourselves to be abused. If you can escape abuse, you absolutely should escape abuse, okay? But when you find mistreatment comes, in small ways in large, Christians do not seek vengeance. We know that God will eventually see that justice is done. We can trust him to do justice. So we turn the other cheek, we give our tunic, we walk the extra mile. Members of Christ's kingdom are called to be utterly gracious when mistreated. Lastly, the treatment of our enemies. Jesus says, his followers, uh, that there is nobody beyond the love obligation of his followers. Uh, Not that people won't treat you as enemies. He's already guaranteed that people will treat you as enemies in this sermon we saw last week. And that they will persecute you if you try to follow him. He's guaranteed it. But members of his kingdom are called to love their enemies. To pray for those who persecute them. Why is that? Verse 45, he says, That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And that really brings us to the nub of Jesus' argument in this chapter. Why is his version of righteousness true while every other version is counterfeit? How can he demand such impossibly high standards as to turn the other cheek to love our enemies? It is because we are called to be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. We are called to show a family resemblance the way we live. Verse 48, he cuts to the chase finally after uh, all these case studies and says, be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How are you doing with that? If true righteousness seems too much for us, if it seems far beyond our abilities, then we've understood it properly. It is beyond your abilities. It is beyond my abilities. It is only by being perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, that righteousness will surpass that of the Pharisees. And when when we see that, we're forced to, again, throw ourselves on the mercy of God and ask for His grace. Ask for the grace of the only one who has ever lived up to the standard, the genuine article, Jesus Christ himself. He is the genuine article that we compare our righteousness to. 
Only Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He got angry at sin, but he didn't sin in his anger. He showed care and compassion to every woman he ever met, some of which were in the business of seducing men, but he never looked at them lustfully. He lived a life of complete honesty, even when it led him to his death. And when he was falsely accused, when he was slapped and and whipped and nailed to a cross, he didn't resist. In his final words, he spoke love to those who were killing him. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus fulfilled the law in at least this one more way. He was perfect as his heavenly Father was perfect. And yet he died the death of a common criminal. Why? The righteous one died the death of the unrighteous so that unrighteous people like us could be counted righteous by God. So we don't bother with counterfeit righteousness. We don't waste our time comparing ourselves to others. Instead, we follow the righteous king, straining to live as he's commanded, but sure of his mercy, certain of his forgiveness when we fail. We certainly will enter the kingdom of heaven if we seek his grace. Let's pray. Father, we are are challenged by the Lord Jesus' words, by the standard of righteousness he puts forward, and yet we are so grateful to you for your mercy and your willingness to receive us and, and to forgive us and to make us clean. Thank you for that, and I pray that we would live lives that are honoring to you in response. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.